You may be seated, and I want to welcome you along with the folks from the first service to worship this morning. My name is Eric, and I get to pastor down here, and we are in September, and we are at long last beginning a new sermon series, as Mike has mentioned, in the book of Joshua. It's going to be an interesting time. We'll be there for quite some time, but as we get started, just to sort of uh, grease the proverbial skids to sort of get us uh, aimed in the right direction. I wonder if lately, maybe over the last few weeks or months, or maybe even a couple of years, I wonder if you've had the, the experience or a conversation where because of all that's been going on, you get people who are just chatting casually with one another over coffee or over the fence or something, and they're saying things like, well, I, I'm not saying I know when Jesus is coming back, but I mean, this is certainly almost got to be it because things are just so crazy right now. Am I right? Am I right? And then you find yourself kind of going, uh, I mean, no, yeah, it's crazy. I get it. I get it. And I hear that kind of talk all the time. Things are crazy. Surely Jesus is coming back soon. And my answer is usually the same level of vexing, which I go, oh, I don't know. I can tell you that it's closer. And that's all. That's all I know. Because the reality is, it's always been crazy. There's never been a time when the world was not just on the verge of full-on meltdown. Because the problem with the world is there's all of these um, people, and they're just little sin factories, all of them, right? Well, that's really interesting because the world's always been crazy. The more things change, the more things actually stay the same. As long as there have been people or clusters of people who abandon the Lord and run off to pursue other adventures and other avenues, there's always going to be crazy in the world. But why is that? Have you ever thought about that? Why? Because really and truly, everybody generally wants the same thing. Everybody basically wants to be happy, with the exception of a few really, really, really strange people in Philadelphia. We'll leave that alone. Except for them, everybody actually wants to be happy, at least the way we would normatively define happy. It's a, a general category of life where it's good, it's prosperous, and everyone gets along. Even the people that you most fervently disagree with about the most important issues, even they want to be happy. Everyone generally accepts that something is broken in the world, and so with all of our brilliance and social media, we as a culture now have decided that the best way to root out systemic evil is to make videos on TikTok and demonize all of our enemies. And then we're shocked that the actual animosity is increasing, and people's blood pressure is a smooth 300 over 250. Like, I don't know why things aren't coming down. Everybody's looking for some level of joy, that only ever comes out of fulfillment, but we're looking in the wrong spaces. And so believe it or not, sometimes we can take a step back. We can look at the world around us. We can sort of gauge the climate of the culture or society. And that actually is instructive for us as we try to understand what is God revealing of himself in his word. The world is broken. And most people in some way or another are actually looking for salvation, but not just going to heaven when they die. We define salvation as an event and a process in which a, pro a person is brought into right relationship with God. Let me say that again. Salvation is an event and a process in which a person is brought into right relationship with God. Now, whether you've ever thought of it that way or not, if that was the case, if a person was actually brought into right relationship with God, they would for the first time be happy. 
because they would lack for nothing. They would have full confidence, full security, full safety, full acceptance, everything. And so everybody at some level is looking for salvation, not just dying one day and going to heaven. That's not salvation. Salvation is a life that matters now as well. It is meaning and purpose and value and worth and significance and weight. And everybody on the planet, by and large, is looking for that in some way. It's a story as old as time. They will look for salvation anywhere and everywhere they can except for the one true source of salvation for this life and even for the next. So that takes us at long last to our big idea for the morning as we get started in our sermon series in the book of Joshua. This won't be a surprise. Our big idea goes like this. God is our salvation. God is our salvation. I've titled this message, Joshua, because we're in the book of Joshua and the word Joshua means God saves. God is our salvation, we might say. So that's gonna be our introductory message in the book of Joshua. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. Now, we've got to do a little bit of background. Sometimes I spend time on this platform, and it's preaching. Sometimes in this sort of setting, I have to do some teaching. I have to establish a little bit of the context so that the preaching later, hopefully, will have a little bit more impact. I need to do a little bit of background on the book of Joshua. We're going to be in the book of Joshua all the way through May, Lord willing, of next year. We'll pause at the Advent season, but we'll be in the book of Joshua all the way through May. Now, I need to get this out of my system right off the bat, very first Sunday in the sermon series on Joshua, because research shows that most Christians, when they envision Bible stories and characters and scripture, they still only hear talking vegetables. So this is not Joshua. This is not Joshua. He was a real dude, a real person in history. And if you're too old to know who that is, ask someone with a phone that doesn't have a dial on it, okay? These are the veggie tales, and they're not real people. Helpful, perhaps, at times. No, that's not the real Joshua. Joshua is a hinge book. It's a bridge of a book. It's in the Old Testament narrative style. So let me say this as a blanket uh, introduction. Old Testament narrative is a declaration from God about God. Now, you need to know that, or a lot of Old Testament narrative portions won't make any sense to you. Old Testament narrative is a declaration from God about God. Now, in the last few verses of Deuteronomy, the last chapter is chapter 34, we learn of the death of Moses, the greatest leader in the history of Israel. And the text is very clear. He was vibrant. He was vigorous. He was bright-eyed. He was able. He was ready. And God said, time to die. And so Moses dies. And we're told very, very succinctly that God takes his friend and buries him in the valley of Zoar under Mount Nebo, and no one knows where it is to this day. And Moses' time is over. And then the text tells us that they weep and mourn for Moses for 30 days. Now, I've been to like some Catholic funerals that were long, but 30 days. Like after a while, day 17, you're like, I got nothing else in me. I mean, I, I just... I. I miss him, but I mean, can we get on? 30 days, they, weep, they mourn and they weep for this guy. And then they're sitting camped on the eastern side of the Jordan, kind of going, well, Moses, Moses, he was our guy, but oh no, I guess we're going to die. And so what's going to happen with the book of Joshua? How is this going to unfold? 
all of this that Moses has dead and the preparation for the book of Joshua is really a pointing back to something that happened 500 years prior. In the book of Genesis, in chapter 12, 15, 17, and 21, God comes to a man named Abram, this over-the-hill pagan moon worshiper with a barren wife in Baghdad named Abram and says, I'm going to start a brand new nation out of you. I promise I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you offspring and I'm going to give you blessing. Start walking. And so 500 years later, only some of that has happened in parts. This brings us to the book of Joshua. There are some interesting themes or some, some master strokes of the book of Joshua. I would summarize it very basically like this. God's grace and the response of the people. Remember, Old Testament narrative is a declaration about God by God or from God. And what God is saying is, this is my grace. How will you as a person, how will you as a people respond? That's the question that you have to ask and answer in Joshua. 21 chapters, we are told, refrain after refrain, story after story, that God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful for 21 chapters. And so we're supposed to get to the end of the 21st chapter, and the whole congregation is supposed to stand up and want to sing, great is thy faithfulness. And then the last three chapters are all about the response of the people. The, the hope is that you would read the last three chapters, and then the congregation would rise as one, and they would sing, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust. Somebody ought to write that down. That'd be a good song. That'd be a really good one. That's the idea, the grace of God and the response of the people. There is a difficulty in this passage that we need to talk about. And we'll talk about it again from time to time as it comes up in the text. This is a book, the book of Joshua, that has caused a lot of, oh, how shall I say, uh, discomfort in recent generations, particularly the later part of the 20th century and the early part of the 21st century, that the book of Joshua is advocating colonialism or genocide. Now, we have to understand that is not at all what this book is. The Old Testament narratives are a declaration about God by God. So what is this saying about him? To be very, very clear, it doesn't matter what anybody else, what any other scholar says about the conquest of the land. None of that matters at all because the Bible itself tells us what this is. I need you to follow me. It doesn't matter if we think, hey, this is a, a wrong approach. They should have been more diplomatic. No, no. The Bible, in describing who God is, tells us what this is. It is a conquest. It is not a settlement. It's not colonialism and it's not imperialism. It is a conquest that hooks back to the promise God made to Abraham. Now, there's three categories that we need to understand about this conquest. Number one, God has been patient. It's not like God just showed up and plows the land of Canaan. All these people had no hope, no chance. No, God tells Abram in Genesis 15, you're gonna go down to Egypt, you and your descendants, and for 400 years, the Ammonites, or the Amorites, sorry, the Amorites, their wickedness will ripen. He's given them four centuries to repent of their actions, their grotesque deeds of child sacrifice and infant mutilation. And it didn't get better in those 400 years. It simply got worse. God was patient. He gave them more than four centuries to turn from those horrible, godless ways. And he had placed his law on their hearts, we are told. It's not like they were without excuse because they didn't have the, the 10 tablets, the 10 commandments, I should say. So the first category is that God has been patient. Secondly, God detests depravity. We have a problem sometimes with the conquest of the land because, oh, that's just so mean. It's so harsh. 
we don't understand the depths of sin. God tells them in Leviticus 18 how horribly he hates depravity and debauchery, specifically and precisely sexual sin. God says, this is what I want you to not do. Do not engage in these kinds of sexual practices. Do none of this ever. And the children of Israel go, ooh, does that page have pictures? Because in no time, they start doing all of it. But God detests depravity. Third thing, God is going to use the Israelites to be the instrument of his judgment. Not because of their righteousness, but because of his righteousness. And he wants to instruct Israel by being the judgment on the ungodly, which is what God said in Deuteronomy 9. In fact, once they complete the conquest, they were supposed to go into the land, and then half the tribes would go up on Mount Gerizim, the other tribes would go up on Mount Ebal. You know what they would do? As they would pronounce the blessings of obedience. Six of the tribes would pronounce from the top of the mountain across the valley. They would say, God is gracious. God is good. God is for us. And if we follow him, he will bless in abundance. And look, here's the proof. Look. And the other six tribes were to go up on Mount Gerizim and they were to pronounce the curses. Look what will happen to us if we rebel. Look what will happen to us if we forsake our gracious, good, and faithful God. Look at all the other nations that have been put to the sword. And still, it wasn't enough. See, our God is our salvation. Most of us will hear that in church and go, no, no, I get that. God, move on, tell me something I don't know. God is our salvation. And you do know it. Right up until the point when you don't. Because functionally, most of us walk around believing that for the sweet by and by, but in the moment by moment conversations with our spouses, with our kids, with our coworkers, with our neighbors, the meditations of our heart that no one else sees and hears and knows, we don't actually functionally believe it. But God is our, our salvation, the source of our fulfillment. So the book of Joshua is for us. God is our salvation, even when it seems as though he isn't, or that circumstances have arisen that are going to thwart the whole plan of God on my life, on my family, on my church, maybe even my community or country. Now, God is our salvation. You might think of the book of Joshua kind of like a movie. If you were to make Joshua into a movie and borrow like a, I don't know, maybe a title from a romantic comedy, we call those, for, for, for you ladies who don't understand, we call those a rom-com. I know you ladies don't have any idea what I'm talking about, but the guys, we sit around, we watch rom-coms. And I would call the book of Joshua, the rom-com, I would call it Four Funerals and a Wedding. What do I call it? <laughs> Four Funerals and a Wedding, because it starts off with a funeral. That's the funeral of Moses. And then at the end of the book, you've got three more funerals. You've got Joshua, who's going to die by the end of the book of Joshua. Spoiler alert, Joshua's going to die. Okay, it's all right. It's good. Joshua's going to die. Eliezer, the priest, is going to die. And then we hear of Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, whose bones were in Egypt. And he demanded that when the children of Israel left Egypt, they would take his bones with them and deposit them in the land. So you've got those four funerals, but all of this is sort of overshadowed by a wedding. And again, that wedding started 500 years prior when God comes to Abram and says, I'm going to wed myself to this nation. I'm going to be a husband to them and I will be faithful and I will love her and keep her and bless her and prosper her. Five centuries later. And so this finally at long last is the story of when it begins to occur. So Joshua chapter one, we're just gonna go through the first nine verses as an introduction. Joshua chapter one, beginning in verse one. The first word in Hebrew text is actually wah. 
and it means and. Because Joshua is a transition. It's, just, it's a bridge. It just continues on what was already being discussed at the end of Deuteronomy. Moses is dead. We wept 30 days. Moses is buried. And after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. Moses is going to get mentioned 11 times in the first chapter. You almost think, is, is, is he really dead? I mean, no, they don't know where he is. Where, where, where is he? 11 times. He's a big deal. The greatest leader in the history of Israel. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, he's called that three times in this chapter. The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun. Now that's interesting. The Lord says directly to Joshua. It's been 30 days. Nothing else is happening. They're camped over on the eastern side of the Jordan River and everyone's kind of like, I, I, what, are we, what are we doing? It's not exactly been 40 years. What are we supposed to do? Do we just turn around? What do we do? And Yahweh, think of the grace of this. Yahweh speaks to Joshua. Now that's a pivot point because it doesn't happen hardly ever again. God would come and he would speak to Adam. God came and he speaks to Noah. God will come and he'll speak to Abram and to Isaac and to Jacob. And certainly he speaks to Moses for many, many years. But here he speaks to Joshua and thereafter things change. Now God's going to commune with, J with Joshua a different way. And it's instructive for us to see that and to recognize that. But he does come and he speaks to this guy named Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Joshua is from the tribe of Ephraim. That's really interesting. Moses was from the tribe of Levi. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, the kingly line. But he, Joshua is from the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim and Manasseh were the two sons of Joseph. And so they each got their own tribe as a sort of a blessing for Joseph. But he's, he's, not out, he's not inside that normal, typical route of the leader of Israel. And his name is Joshua, but it didn't start off that way. In Numbers 13, he's referred to as Hoshea, which means salvation. But jo then Moses changes his name from Hoshea, which is what we have for Hosea and Isaiah. It's all the same name root. Changes it to Yahshua, God saves, or God is our salvation, or God saves me. And that becomes his name. And yes, the observant amongst you will pick up on the fact that Yahshua sounds a lot like Yeshua, which is also the name that Jesus has. It's a English transliteration would be into Jesus. And so yes, Joshua is an amazing figure. He's an incredible character in the story, but it's not about him. It is preparing for and pointing to the ultimate Joshua, the ultimate one who saves. The ultimate God is our salvation person. So God comes to him and speaks to him. He says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Isn't that interesting? I, I, listen, I don't know what you think about when you think about God, but I have a tendency to think God's really big and probably busy, and he's got a lot of stuff to think about but he is involved and aware of the most small, minutest details. This one speck of a human being in the ancient Near East, and God knows that he's dead. Now, what's interesting is the text doesn't say, and God said, Moses is dead. Oh, no, run for your lives. No, no, no. There's no panic. There's no, there's no crisis in heaven ever. God seems to be saying, hey, listen, I don't want you to mistake that Moses was a great man. He was but don't make an idol out of leaders. God's promises hang on his promises, not on personalities. All the difference. Moses is gone. Yeah, you're a part of something way bigger than that, Joshua and Israel. God is not in crisis. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, 
just sort of matter of fact. Let's just get to it. Arise. Go over this Jordan. Wait, say, what now, God? You want me to, what? Like, there's a lot of people. There's a, and God's saying, listen, listen, I made a promise. Flooding rivers, funerals, they don't thwart my plans. I am faithful. Now get up, not wait a little while longer. You know, 30 days wasn't good enough. Let's have some more weeping and mourning. No, God says, we're done with that. It's time to go. So just very succinctly, therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. See, I'll get asked this every now and then. How come Israel seems to think that they get that land? Answer, God said so. All of the world is his and the fullness thereof. And so he is entitled to be the giver of it because it's his. And he's giving it to them as an inheritance. That's an interesting expression, an inheritance. Inheritance is usually given after somebody has died. But God says, I'm giving this to you. I want to show you a map on screen so you can be oriented of where we are in the geography. They're down south on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They're going to go up north, and they're going to cross the Jordan River north of the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. They're going to go to Jericho. Perhaps you've heard the song. Joshua did, in fact, fit the Battle of Jericho. And then they're going to go down south. But I want you to be in the land because the land matters to God, interestingly. And he says, listen, I want you to get up. I want you to go across. It's time. It's time to enter in. How we've been doing on the three promises of the, prom- of the covenant with Abraham. I will give you land. Mm, not yet. I will give you offspring. Oh, well, there's a few million of us. I will give you blessing. Oh my goodness, I have traveled with you by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. I've given you manna, I've given you quail. Your clothes didn't wear out. I have taken care of all of the enemies here in the wilderness. You got bit by snakes, I fixed that. They have been the recipients of an amazing amount of grace from God. And he's maintained his faithfulness. Verse three, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. It's really interesting. It's the tension of the Old Testament. I have given it, now go get it. I have given it, go get it. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are in no way ever in conflict. Sometimes hard for us to reconcile, but God says, I've given it to you, now go get it. Everywhere that you walk means you're going to have to walk the entire breadth of the land. You're going to have to go in and get it. It is not going to be easy but it will be successful. Now, I just want you to imagine your life, the struggles, the the challenges that you have relationally, financially, health-wise, if God said to you with certainty, it is not going to be easy, but it will be successful. And maybe you don't even understand successful, but you trust him and you arise and you go. That kind of person with that kind of conviction is an influential, impactful person indeed. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. I've given it to you already. It's done. Now go get it. Just as I promised to Moses. And then we're going to get the boundaries. Verse 4, we're going to get these wonderful boundaries. To the south is the wilderness. That would be the Negev Desert and all that region to the west of the Dead Sea. That's the wilderness area. And this Lebanon, as far as the Great River. So Lebanon is uh, up in the north. That's sort of, even to this day, there's a mountain range in southern Lebanon that sort of forms the border with Israel. And then the Great River, that is the Euphrates to the east. This is a big chunk of land. 
the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites. That's not probably the actual Hittite empire, which would have been in what is today modern Turkey. Just little pockets of Canaanite uh, kingdoms and villages would have just been referred to collectively as the Hittites. They're all going to get wiped out. And the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. So the wilderness in the south, Lebanon in the north, the Euphrates in the east, and the Mediterranean in the west. Incidentally, Israel has never, ever occupied that size of property. They got close under King Solomon, but never all the way. So we want to be really, really careful when we talk about what's going on in the ancient Near East and in the modern Near East with Israel, net of 1948. We want to be really cautious, really careful, and really clear. That Israel that began in 1948 is a good deal. I'm for it. I'm going there. It's cool. It is not the Israel of the Bible. That nation is a secular state by constitution. In other words, they legally, nationally reject Yahweh. So we just want to be super careful that we don't say, well, that's it. It's happening. I'm ready to go. Here we go. You might run out of canned peaches before Jesus returns. Okay? Now, I understand that that strikes a lot of nerves with a lot of people, so I look forward to your emails. That's mike at Bethelbible.com. <laughs> Those are the boundaries that they will inherit. And one day, Israel, when true Israel, when the Son of God literally logistically reigns from Jerusalem, that land will, in fact, be Israel's. Verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And here's a central verse of your Old Testament. When I was a kid, like in the third grade, there was a bus stop, and people actually sent their kids on school buses to ride to school. I think that like went out with the Reagan era, I guess. I'm not sure. But I would go to the bus stop, and every now and then there was a kid named Jamie Yates, and Jamie, if you're listening, <laughs> he's not. Jamie would just bully me all the time. He just picked on me. He shoved me down, put my face in the snow, all kinds of stuff. And it was just a bad deal. But every now and then, I'd see him coming, and I'd kind of like turn like, oh, here it comes. And Jamie would just be like, and he would run off. And I was like, that's right. That's right. All 48 pounds of sparkling Opie Taylor hair just totally turned him on his, on his heel there. Well, that's when I would realize, oh, my big brother, who was about four times my size, was literally standing behind me going, hey, no one picks on him but me. And then he'd slap me in the back of the head, right? <laughs> you got the sense that when anybody messed with Moses, they'd walk up to this guy and then there would just be kind of this, oh, God is with him. And they would leave him alone. Nobody messed with Moses and God's saying, hey, I've got you, Joshua. Nobody's going to mess with you either. I will never leave. I will never forsake. I will never abandon. I will never drop you. Now, I got to nerd out a little bit here because there's something else going on when God says that to Joshua that we might miss because we haven't read it straight through all in one reading. Way back in Exodus 32 through 34, we get this strange little vignette in Exodus where God finally has enough of the people's grumblings and groanings. They're wandering around in the wilderness. They're just complaining nonstop. They're bad-mouthing Moses. They're bad-mouthing God. And finally, God goes, that is it. I'm out. I'm leaving. Moses, your people are terrible. They are a stench in my nostrils. I'm out. I'm, in fact, you know what I'm going to do? Yeah, I know what I'll do. I'll send my angel through and kill everybody. And then you and I can go into the land, and I'll make you rich and famous. And Moses is the only one. Hear this. 
He is the only one in all of Israel that is in covenant fellowship with God at this point. He's the only Israelite that is in covenant fellowship that can have relationships and proximity and conversation with God. And so what does Moses do? He face plants. He says, don't do this. And by the way, they're not my people. They're your people. Don't do this because then the nations will think such and thus about you. Don't do it. Please don't do it. I beseech you. I beg you. And God was that close to abandoning and forsaking. Now he wouldn't have because he'd already promised. But because of Moses' intermediary mediation, God stays and he doesn't forsake them. Now Josh was hearing this and he's going, wait, I was there. I know that we almost really lost out, but Moses stood in the gap. And God's telling Joshua, I'm not ever going to do that to you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so then the writer of Hebrews comes along in Hebrews chapter 13, verse five, and it says, get rid of all covetousness, all greed, all bringing to yourself stuff that you think is gonna fulfill you. Get rid of all covetousness. Have I not told you, I will never leave or forsake you. That's a fascinating play of theology. The writer of Hebrews quotes Joshua 1.5. The cure for covetousness is confidence in God's presence. And when we find ourselves acting out in covetousness, it's because we are not confident or we are not mindful of God's presence. See, the world has changed, but not that much. 3,500 years, what the world needs is people who are confident in the presence of God. I will not leave you. I will not abandon or forsake or drop you, he says there in verse 5. Verse six, we get the first of three encouragements from God. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Joshua, you're going to be the instrument. Be strong and courageous. Now, I get it. When we draw our Bible characters in children's ministry, we usually draw them as cartoons that they're all swolled up and they're muscular and they're for some reason wearing armbands like they're World Wrestler Federation veterans and they've got mullet and mustaches and they just look like they're extras on a Rambo movie. That's not what these dudes look like, okay? We know anthropologically they're probably about 135 pounds. They're about five foot three, five four. They're little fellas. They look like the B team from the junior high JV. And so when God comes to them and says, be strong and courageous, it's, you can see Joshua, <laughs> okay, okay. He's just terrified. I tell my kids, stop running with scissors when they're sound asleep. No, I don't do that. Of course not. I tell them to stop doing the thing when they're doing it, or I tell them to do the thing that they're not doing. So clearly Joshua is not exhibiting and demonstrating strength and courage when God has to tell him three times in this opening passage, be strong and courageous, and here's why based on three different promises. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. It's my faithfulness, Joshua, not your power, not your awesomeness, not your creativity or cleverness. It's me. I made a promise. I'm doing this. I am faithful. Verse seven, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. I want you to know this book. Now we gotta stop and get a little bit more nerdy here. This has caused a lot of conjecture. What is, what is God talking about? God probably doesn't know that the Bible's not been written yet. No, no, no. God knows what's going on. And so this is one of those central passages that tells us and teaches us that Moses did in fact write the Pentateuch because God says so. 
Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Joshua knows Moses, was probably a, a scribe or a secretary for Moses. And for 38 years, what were they doing out there? Moses was writing this down. Everything from the creation of the world to the fall in the garden, to the building of the ark, to the tower of Babel, to the story of the patriarchs. Moses is writing it down to give the story of God because it is a declaration about God from God or by God. And so he says, I want you to know that book, it exists. And so probably Joshua had that which Moses had written and probably Joshua over 40 years had made his own copy and maybe even more. I want you to know this book, according to God, the first five books of our Bible are God's very words. So I don't know what you think about when you think about Genesis or Numbers and oh my gosh, all the lists. Yes, because God's making a declaration about himself and he wants Joshua to know what these things are. Do not turn from this law to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Does that mean financial wealth and, and material gain? No, it means that your life goes the way your purpose is, that you will actually achieve and accomplish what God has set out for you, and you will have fulfillment, and you will experience and express joy. Verse 8, this book of the law. He's talking about these first five books of Moses. This book of the law, not the Ten Commandments only, all of it from Genesis 1-1 through Deuteronomy 34. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Now that's a little bit of a surprise. See, God's actually a brilliant uh, teacher, go figure, because he created us and he knows how we work. He wants Joshua talking about it. He wants Joshua, when he studies the book, to say it out loud because it's a synthesis. And when we hear our own voices say the very words of God, something happens in us and we begin increasingly to think like God. There's an old preacher's adage. If you're not talking to your Bible, it won't talk to you. So I really do encourage you when you read your Bible, sometimes do so out loud. You need to hear your own voice and then ask it questions and then answer those questions and then make dumb comments and then clarify those comments. Talk to it. I don't want it out of your mouth. Like, I'm not kidding, God says. I want this to be what you're thinking and talking about all the time. Now, to talk about it, you have to know it. You have to have read it. You have to think it. Of course, don't let it out of your mouth. And then he doubles down. Watch this. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. But the word meditate, well, nobody knows quite how to translate it because it's the word mutter. I want you to mutter it day and night. It's just always forefront. It's always right there. Why does God have to tell us that? Because it drifts so quickly. It goes so fast. One of my heroes in the faith, a guy named John Piper, always said that when his mind is on idle, the were of his mind is Isaiah 43. If he's just driving or if he's just sort of sitting still, it's Isaiah 43 is the were of his mind. And I hear that and I go, huh. Because mine, Pop-Tarts, 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 Pop-Tarts. No, no, no. I want this to be in your mouth always. I want you to mutter it day and night. Never will he leave me. Never will he depart. Never will he forsake me. He loves me. He's for me. If he is for me, who can stand against me? I will be like a tree planted by streams of living water. See, that's muttering. Just, and maybe incoherently, nobody else can even hear it, but I'm muttering the words of God all the time. And when I do that, I increasingly think what he thinks. I want what he wants. I be who he wants me to be. And I am fulfilled and I have joy. 
You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. How are you going to do it if you don't know what it is? And so we, we meditate, we synthesize it, we ruminate on it, we chew on it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Again, not monetary financial gain, not necessarily, but your life will take on the meaning for which it was created. Verse nine, have I not commanded you? Yeah, you did. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. Why did he say that? Because he was both of those things. He was both frightened and dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You gotta remember, Caleb's, Caleb and Joshua have been in the land before. 38 years earlier at Kadesh Barnea, they were part of the 12 spies that went in. They said, guys, we can take them. We can take them. Yes, they're giants. Yes, they're hugongous. Yeah, they probably have nukes. We can take them. We got God. And the people said, no. Caleb and Joshua for 38 years have been chomping at the bit, but now Joshua is afraid. Now that can happen to us sometimes. I love the fact that Joshua's got a buddy named Caleb. You know what Caleb's name in Hebrew loosely translates to? Dog boy. Everybody needs a little dog boy to go, let me at him, let me at him. Easy, Caleb, heel, heel. We'll get to Caleb later. Sometimes God's charge is not easy, but if he's promised, it will be successful. See, God is our salvation. Let me give three very quick takeaways, implications for this, and then we'll be done. Number one goes like this. You are a part of God's purpose. You, individually, you as a household, you as a church, you are a part of God's purpose. Sometimes we sit in the 21st century and we hear a story from 3,500 years ago that this happened to some other people on the other side of the planet way before Facebook and Twitter even existed, so that must not have anything to do with me. No, no, no. You are a part of God's purpose. Because God has not changed and his purpose remains the same, to be the light and hope of the world and to offer salvation to all peoples. And we have the part to play in all this. We're not soldiers in Israel running around slaughtering Canaanites. I mean, I guess that might be, no, it wouldn't be cool either. No, that's not what we're being called to do. We are the new covenant community of the spirit that is intended to bless those who are already here while creating opportunities to be heard by those who are not yet here. This is God's plan for your life, the local church, to be a part of something that goes beyond the death of some leaders, to engage in a kingdom initiative that in some cases leads a person to faith in Christ, and we celebrate that, and in other cases may break a cycle of brokenness or addiction or pain that's been rolling for decades. That's how God gets it done. He uses people to bless people. You're a part of God's purpose. He is still rolling forth his program of the gospel and we get to participate. Second point, it's not gonna surprise anybody, but it goes like this. We cannot know God apart from his word, although we try. But God himself says, you cannot know me apart from my word. My word is living and active and it is my declaration of myself. Joshua doesn't, or God doesn't give Joshua a whole bunch of new books from any particular publisher, or even send him a bunch of links for some podcasts. Weird. God never does that. God wants Joshua to read, to talk about, to know, to meditate, and to mutter on the declaration about God by God so that Joshua can know God. No amount of experiences or activities or other sources of literature are as impactful or as life-changing to our minds and hearts as God's word because it really and truly is the very words of God. 
Unlike Joshua, however, we have the completion of the canon and we have the coming of Christ to be the answer of yes to all of God's promises. We have the indwelling spirit to illumine our study of his word. We also have the people of God to come alongside and, and encourage us that we walk through the mind of God together. The truth of God's word must run through our hearts, through our minds and our souls, so that individually and collectively, well, we can do what we taught our children that actually, as it turned out, was really more for us to stop, to think, and do what's right. To stop, think, and do what's wise, do the next wise thing. And that comes from feasting frequently on the very words of God. That's wisdom. That's what God has for us in his word. And he takes it very seriously. And so we must as well. Third point is very simple. And I just want it to be a charge of encouragement. It goes like this. Go with God, but don't miss the emphasis on the correct syllable. Go with God. Moses is dead. Arise and go therefore. I love that after the appropriate time of morning, God tells them just to get up and go. Sometimes there can be a paralysis in our lives that comes from over-analysis, but we've all been given what we need for life and godliness. Again, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God, all because of the finished work of the Son of God. So whatever it is that's maybe got you in a holding pattern, familially, relationally, ministerially, ecclesially, I don't know, whatever's got you kind of just in a holding pattern, arise, go with God. Be strong and courageous. He is with you and he's actually for you. Yes, you must pray and seek wise counsel, but I would counsel you, go until you get a no because God intends for this world to see that he is salvation and it is found in no other name under heaven. God is our salvation. These stories about the land of Israel, they're telling us something about God. God is so desperate to have a place with people. I don't know what you think about God when you think about God. I don't know. Maybe you just think of this abstract mm, cloud of energy or light. But he's a person. And God digs the diggable. Let me explain. God actually has a passion for a place. Because God loves us so much. He creates the garden so that there will be an environment in which he and Adam and Eve can commune and be together. He creates the tabernacle. And what does it look like? It looks like a garden. The very first person to ever receive the Holy Spirit is a guy named Bezalel. And Bezalel receives the Spirit and he carves all these little pomegranates and pineapples and date palms and all these flowers and trees because the tabernacle, that's the place where God will commune with man. He just wants to be with people so bad. Like he can't hardly stand it. And then we have Israel. And what does he tell Israel? Oh, Israel, the land, it's full of milk and honey. That's date honey and it's, and it's livestock and it's agriculture. It's amazing. But I want you to be there because I want to be there with you. So much so that he says, I'm going to send my own son into that land and they will kill him. And the thing that you actually fear most foundationally and fundamentally is being dropped, abandoned, and forsaken. He will be the one that gets completely abandoned, forsaken, and dropped so that you never have to fear that. And then he will come back and he will establish literally, logistically, legally his reign on the earth where there's a place where we can be together with him. But in the meantime, we get to be a preview of coming attractions because we have 
Emmanuel. God is our salvation. He is the with us God. Let me pray for us and we'll be done. Father, I thank you for this morning, for the opportunity to unpack this early passage in the book of Joshua. I do pray, God, if there's anyone here this morning in person or watching remotely that does not know you, that is seeking for fulfillment in any other avenue, that you would just, by your spirit, lead them into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus, that he is the Christ, that he takes away their sin and gives them righteousness so that you and they can have right relationship. They may not have to agree or understand every bit of doctrine, but would you save them? Would you give them life? Would you give them fulfillment and therefore joy? Would you give us wisdom as a church to love them, lead them, guide them, and guard them? For the rest of us, Father, oh, there's so many different circumstances and fears, frustrations, anxieties, uncertainties, and doubts. But you're for us. You are with us. You will never leave or forsake us. So may we practice your presence, our God. And pray this, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen.